Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new in the sense that they were released into theaters on November 10th, 2023. The other two, well, there's one that was given an early sort of limited release, but then was released into theaters nationwide. The other one came out the weekend of November 3rd, which happened to be my 41st birthday, by the way. So I'm going to be reviewing that movie a little bit later. But let's start with the newest one that may not, may or may not be the biggest hit but will definitely be one of the most talked about movies of this week. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Marvels. And The Marvels is a continuation of a lot of things. It's a sequel to the film Captain Marvel, which was made back in 2019, which starred Brie Larson as the titular character. It's also a continuation of the television miniseries Ms. Marvel, which premiered on Disney Plus last year. And it is the 33rd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, The Marvel Cinematic Universe has been going on for 15 years and doesn't show any real signs of stopping. I think one of the MCU films has to bomb really, really hard in order for the MCU to cease to be, but it would have to bomb really hard. And obviously, when you have 33 films in a cinematic universe, some are going to be better than others. The Marvels, I thought, was... Very good, but there were some things I thought that were lacking in it, but I'll get to that in just a little bit. But in the Marvels, uh, Carol Danvers, who again is reprised here by Brie Larson, gets her powers entangled with those of a young lady by the name of Kamala Khan, who is played by Iman Villani. And she also gets them entangled with Monica Rambeau, who's played here by Tayona Paris. And when they get their powers entangled, it forces them to work together to save the universe. And there is uh, somewhat of a complicated backstory here. As a matter of fact, when I went into this film, I was actually not aware of the miniseries Ms. Marvel. One of the caveats in the quid pro quo is about being somebody who sees literally hundreds of films a year is that I don't really have a lot of time to watch TV series. But the limited miniseries Ms. Marvel... I guess I just kind of lumped it into WandaVision and some of those other made-for-TV series that are doing very well on Disney+, Plus, but I just don't have time to see them. So I did think that the introduction of Kamala Khan in this film was lacking, but maybe the introduction to her character would be better explained a little bit later. And this is interestingly not the first time that Tayona Paris has played the role of Monica Rambeau. The character of Monica Rambeau was in the original Captain Marvel movie, but she was a child, not an adult. And Tayona Paris plays that character as an adult. But she originally played that character in the television miniseries WandaVision that came out in 2021 and starred Elizabeth Olsen as the Scarlet Witch, and Paul Bettany as Ultron. That is another series that I heard a lot about, but I haven't gotten to see it because I'm a film critic, not a TV critic. So in this film, the three of them ultimately uh, unite. Obviously, Carol Danvers and Monica Rambeau know each other very well. Kamala Khan knows of Captain Marvel, but doesn't actually know her, at least not in the beginning of the film. But she does have superpowers based on a bracelet that she wears that it might have been shown in Ms. Marvel how she obtained the bracelet. In this movie, it was told. And I think in this day and age where you have a cinematic universe like this that also is spun off into TV, I think that the MCU does make a somewhat dangerous assumption in assuming that people who have seen the Marvels have also seen the TV series that go with the MCU in addition to the movies. And I really think that there actually should be some sort of way to catch up with people who might not have seen it. Like, 
Maybe not something as dramatic as when we last left our heroes, so on and so forth. And I did think that the backstory and, and some of the clips from Captain Marvel of Carol Danvers slash Captain Marvel were given a good montage, a good brief montage in the beginning here. But as for the characters of Monica Rambeau and Kamala Khan, their backstories were not shown, but rather told. And I don't think that was a very good move on the, not, not just the filmmakers, the directors and the writers, but also the editors of the film. And also the villain of this film is someone who has a backstory, which is also shared with the Carol Danvers character. And she is looking to take over the universe, but it's kind of one of those things where she's searching for something glowing in order to obtain certain powers she's going to use for evil. I did actually like how she not only used this, those powers to create chaos, but she also created a, a hole in the multiverse. And some people are feeling the fatigue of the multiverse right now. And I can understand that. But here, I think that unlike in the last Doctor Strange movie, I think they do actually have a creative way of using the multiverse. And it's also tied in well with the story. The, the movie is not overcome with this idea of the multiverse. It's tied more into the dangers of multiverses colliding. And it doesn't overwhelm you. So I, I thought that was one of the strengths of it. Also, I did think that the three main actresses in this film, Brie Larson, Iman Vellani, and Tayona Paris, worked together really well. They had amazing chemistry once they got together and actually started to use their powers. It's kind of vaguely explained how Tayona Paris's character, Monica Rambeau, obtained her powers, but I thought that a good uh, plot thread in here was her trying to use some of her powers that she hadn't used or sort of used in kind of an experimental way previously. And, of course, we also have Samuel L. Jackson coming back here as Nick Fury, although when there are cats involved in a certain subplot, it kind of reminded me of the really lame way that Captain Marvel explained how Nick Fury obtained his eye patch. It was a disappointment. And I don't think that development of Nick Fury's character was in the original comic book. It, it was kind of lame in, in the movie Captain Marvel and probably one of the biggest grievances I had about that movie. But the Marvels, I think, is a serviceable sequel. I think it lacks when it assumes that you have been caught up with these uh, characters, particularly Kamala Khan. And also, Kamala Khan's story arc of being starstruck by Captain Marvel is something we've kind of seen before in Tom Holland's incantation of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. But I do think that the film, even though it was lacking in, in some aspects of the story, works more than it doesn't work. Also of note, it's directed by Nia DaCosta, who is not a very old director. She's 35 years old, and she previously directed a remake of the movie Candyman that came out two years ago, which I really liked. I mean, the original Candyman certainly has its cult following, and it, it's certainly beloved, but the remake, which is risky because it's already remaking a beloved film, really had its sense of originality. And also, I thought the Candyman in the remake was scarier than the one in the original. So Nia DaCosta is definitely a director and a writer to watch. I think she put a very good touch in this. And she also created another black female superhero outside of Wakanda who is very well developed in terms of her character. So the Marvels I liked more than I didn't like. I didn't think it was a perfect film, but I did think it was... It certainly is one of the stronger films in the MCU after the Battle of Thanos. And for that reason, the Marvels gets my rating of a high checkout. I do think that Brie Larson, Tayona Paris, and Iman Vellani work together very well, and they have amazing chemistry. I did like the, uh, the story arc of the, the film to a certain extent, but I think that the film's primary weaknesses were where it seemed to assume that 
you had already seen some of the previous films in addition to some of the TV shows and having just some brief montage to catch you up without making it obvious and having it weave into the story would have been beneficial for the Marvels. But I thought that the strengths certainly overpowered the weaknesses. I just think that the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the people behind it shouldn't take for granted the fan base of the people who are seeing the one film they came to see, even though it is the 33rd in the series. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Holdovers. This is the latest film from director Alexander Payne, and it is the second time that he is collaborating with star Paul Giamatti since the 2004 film Sideways. Now, in both of these films, Paul Giamatti plays a private school teacher who is also an alcoholic and in, but they're not the same character. Uh, they definitely have a lot of things in common, but they also have some differences in terms of character as well. And the holdovers premiered at the 50th Telluride film festival in Colorado on August 31st, 2023. It was released into select theaters in the United States on October 27th, 2023, and is now in wide release beginning on November 10th, 2023 and it was released by focused feature excuse me focus singular features and the movie stars paul giamatti as i previously said divine joy randolph and dominic sessa and the holdovers takes place during the christmas holiday of 1970 and it involves a cranky history teacher at a remote prep school presumably in western massachusetts who is forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. And the movie has a lot of people in it, but the primary characters are the cranky history teacher, Paul Hunman, who's played by Paul Giamatti, a cafeteria worker whose name is Mary Lamb, who's played by Divine Joy Randolph, and the rebellious student who has to stay at the school during the holidays, Angus Tully, who's played here by Dominic Sessa. And what's amazing is not just that these three actors work well together. It's actually not surprising that Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph are excellent in this film, even though they are, but they not only have extensive experience acting on screen, they also both are graduates of the Yale School of Drama. And Paul Giamatti's father, Bart Giamatti, was actually the president of Yale from 1978 to 1986. That doesn't necessarily make Paul Giamatti a great actor. It's just an interesting bit of trivia. But what's even more amazing is that Dominic Sessa has never acted in anything on screen previously. He just graduated from Deerfield Academy in Deerfield, Massachusetts, which is also a private preparatory academy in Western Massachusetts in 2022. This is his first screen appearance ever. Before this film, he had only acted on stage at um, stage on stage productions at Deerfield Academy. So for him to share the screen with two actors in particular who have had extensive on-screen experience and were graduated and graduated from Yale School of Drama and to act so well alongside them really is a testament to how much of uh, apparently a natural actor Dominic Sessa is. Either that or Alexander Payne just directs even amateur actors really well. And Alexander Payne has a bit of a bad reputation as a director in being hard to work with, but you cannot deny, especially with his older films like Citizen Ruth, Election, and About Schmidt, in addition to some of his newer films like The Holdovers, how amazing and talented a director Alexander Payne is. 
So I just told you a lot about the actors and how good they are in this film and how they work well together. And the setting of the film, it takes place at a, at a private preparatory school called Barton Academy, which is fictitious. There are a few Barton Academies in the United States. One of them is in Alabama, but this one, this Barton Academy in this film is actually fictitious. It might actually be based on Deerfield Academy because there's one point in the movie where Paul Giamatti states that the Barton Academy was founded in 1797, so it's almost as old as the United States itself. But Deerfield Academy, where Dominic Sessa went to school and just graduated, was also founded in 1797. So I can't exactly say. And interestingly enough, this film is not based on a book either, even though it feels like one of those films that would be based on a book. But the story and screenplay were written by David Hemmingson. And while David Hemmingson has had extensive experience writing for TV episodes and made-for-TV movies, this is his first film that has been written for a, a feature film. And there are various backstories to these characters which make them even more interesting. I don't know what's with Paul Giamatti's eyes in this film or what made his eyes the way they are, but apparently he has one bad eye or a glass eye. But that actually ties into his character pretty well. But he is a bachelor. He obviously cares very much about being a good educator, probably to a fault, because he's known as being not only a very strict teacher, but also a very bad person, uh, allegedly, according to some of these other characters. And you also have the character Mary Lamb, played by Divine Joy Randolph, who not only is somewhat underappreciated having worked in this cafeteria for many students who are ungrateful or maybe take for granted where their food comes from, but she also has a son who attended this preparatory academy who died in Vietnam earlier that year. So you have Divine Joy Randolph's character not only struggling to stay at this empty preparatory academy, only having contact with a student and a professor with whom she really doesn't have anything in common, but she's also dealing with the grief of losing her son. I think she has some amazing scenes, not only with Paul Giamatti and Dominic Sessa, but also on her own. And I, I would be, I, I would be outraged if Divine Joy Randolph does not get a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Maybe Best Lead Actress she might be qualified for as well, but at least Best Supporting Actress. And the same goes for Paul Giamatti. He's definitely a shoe-in for Best Actor. And there are a lot of things to love about The Holdovers. I think it works not only as a convincing drama, but I also think it being a film that takes place at Christmas, this is actually one of the films you may want to watch on Christmas, at least sometimes. It may not be the perennial favorite that It's a Wonderful Life is, but I think it has the potential to maybe in five or ten years be one of those films you watch every year at Christmas along with It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe not right after or before or whatever, but it has the makings of being a Christmas classic. But overall, even if it took place in June of whatever year, it would still be considered an excellent film, a really good slice of life movie, and... To me, it gets my rating of a knockout, and I think it is one of my favorite films of the year. I think it's very well written, extremely well directed, very well shot, very well acted, and the three principal actors, Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa, have such a great chemistry and great rhythm in working together, and they don't get along Exactly. But especially the scenes where Dominic Sessa's character rebels against Paul Giamatti's character, there are some scenes that are very fun, and there are also some that are very poignant. And overall, this is a film that really works. Again, it is one of my favorite films of the year, which is why it gets my rating of an undeniable knockout. See the holdovers? Don't hesitate.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Priscilla, which is a biographical film that was released into theaters nationwide on October 27th, 2023. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival on September 4th. 2023, and it is directed by, written by, and produced by Sofia Coppola, based on the 1985 memoir Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley, who serves as an executive producer. And for those of you who don't know, although the last name and also the fact that she wrote the book Elvis and Me is a dead ringer, this is a this is a movie about Priscilla Presley and and. Predominantly, it's about her marriage to Elvis Presley, which wasn't the worst marriage in Hollywood, either of all time or of that time. Obviously, you had more cataclysmic relationships like Ike and Tina Turner or Sonny and Cher, but obviously Elvis and Priscilla Presley had their issues when they were married. And the movie takes place, well, between the years 1959 and 1973. And in 1959, Priscilla Bolio was 14 years old and residing with her family in Bad Nam, West Germany, where her father was stationed in the U.S. military. And who else was stationed at that base? Elvis Presley, who, even though there wasn't a war going on, the law's had him, uh, dra- th- there was still the draft going on and Elvis was drafted to West Germany and he actually elected to serve the same way that other less privileged draftees would be served, which is pretty, um, noteworthy of Elvis it certainly showed some very good character, but at the time Priscilla Bolio met Elvis Presley, she was 14 and he was 24 And he took a liking to her. This is something that would not fly today. Somebody in their mid-20s who is scoping out a 14-year-old. But I guess in the late 50s, it was a different time. And uh, apparently, her father allowed Priscilla to meet with uh, Elvis on several occasions. And ultimately, Elvis's time in the military was up and they went their separate ways. But Elvis actually still called Priscilla, Priscilla and kept in touch with her, and they eventually got married. But as this movie demonstrates, the marriage between them was not easy. It wasn't all cataclysmic, but it's not easy being married to someone who, A, thousands if not millions of women all over the world adore, and B, somebody who's out of the house many times, either on tour or making movies. Now, Elvis made a ton of really bad movies. I think probably his best movie was Viva Las Vegas, but even that was, it was what it was, you know. But anyway, that that's not really the point of this film. And in this movie, uh, Priscilla Presley is played by Kaylee Spaney, and Elvis Presley is played by Jacob Elordi. And Jacob Elordi probably has the biggest disadvantage of all, particularly because he's playing Elvis after Austin Butler played him in that biographical film from last year directed by Boz Lerman, which was called Elvis. And Austin Butler was amazing as Elvis in that movie, and he did something that I don't think any other actor had done or could have done. He played Elvis when he was young, and he played Elvis when he was older, and he played both Elvises really well. So Jacob Elordi has already a tough act to follow playing Elvis after Austin Butler, and he also has played Elvis after some other noteworthy actors who have played him on television, like Kurt Russell and Jonathan Reese myers However, Jacob Elordi, I think, is really good in this film as Elvis, and he's you see him a lot more when he's relaxed and when he's subdued in this film, a lot more than when he's on stage. Usually when he's on stage or he's performing this film, he's, he's shown in silhouette, which I think was a good stylistic move for Sofia Coppola. But Kaylee Spaney plays Priscilla Bolio slash 
Presley incredibly well in this film. So I thought that she and Jacob Elordi had great chemistry together. And I also thought that Jacob Elordi has really good swagger that makes him reminiscent of a star of the 1950s, not just Elvis, but also when I saw him in the Kissing Booth movies, which were somewhat subpar teen films, although they they did have certain advantages over other teen films, particularly their sense of originality. But Jacob Elordi, I thought, was one of the actors who stood out the most in that film. And he has a swagger that's similar to James Dean or early Marlon Brando. Comparing his acting to Marlon Brando might be a little unfair for his age, but I think he's, he's on the right track to be as celebrated an actor as Marlon Brando. But Kaylee Spaney herself has been in a number of films that I've seen, including Bad Times at the El Royale, and probably I know her best from On the Basis of Sex, where she played the daughter of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was a small role, but her performance in that film which is not easy to do alongside Felicity Jones, actually stood out really well. She's been in some other films as well, but Priscilla is her first leading role, and I think she carries this film incredibly well. My problems with the film were more of the editing and the storytelling. And the editing of the film is one of those things that, kind of unfairly, you don't notice it when it's good, but you notice it when it's bad. And I think that... In, in this case, the, the editing is one of the, the things I had a problem with. For example, there were a couple of scenes where Elvis and Priscilla take a hiatus from their relationship, which probably happened in real life. But there's, there's one scene where Elvis actually tells Priscilla that he just wants a break and he wants her to leave Graceland, you know? This probably happened in real life, and I don't have a problem with the scene, but what I do have a problem with is you see Priscilla pack her bags, but then the next scene doesn't reference the previous scene where she's packing her bags. So you don't exactly know, did she actually leave Graceland? Did she go home to consult with her parents? That would have been something that I think would have been crucial for the the scene that, that followed this one, because... You would think that she would at least go home to see her parents. And maybe if she didn't, if she went home and her parents weren't there or they moved without knowing, without her knowing where they went, that would have been a crucial scene as well. But the movie doesn't make it clear whether or not she actually left Graceland or not. And I also had a problem with the way the movie ended because it ends without spoiling too much. Well, I, I don't think it's spoiling too much when I say what actually happened. Priscilla Presley did not stay with Elvis Presley until he died. He, she divorced him four years before he died. But the movie ends with her leaving Graceland for good. And I would have liked to have known more about what Priscilla Presley did after leaving Elvis. Because she is still around today. I mean, unfortunately, she um, had to live with Elvis dying and then Lisa Marie Presley, her only daughter dying, and that can't be very easy to do. And I'm not saying that the film should have taken this on, but it should have at least ended when Elvis died. And yes, Elvis is dead. Conspiracy theories aside, well, let's just assume Elvis is dead because if he were alive today, he would be 88 years old, which is very unlikely. But That's another story for another time. But And I also didn't like that last scene because... The song by Dolly Parton, I Will Always Love You, played during that scene. And that's an excellent song, both when Dolly Parton sang it and especially when Whitney Houston sang it. But in this scene, a better song to end with probably should have been Always On My Mind by Elvis Presley because that's the song that was a hit after his divorce. And it's very poignant when you consider the relationship that he and Priscilla actually had. So there were some editing and there were some storytelling techniques that I think were lacking in this film. And it may have had to do with Priscilla Presley herself serving as an executive producer of this film. Because when real life subjects are involved in movies about their lives or about events that they actually witnessed, there's a tendency for them to paint over the ugly parts. And I feel like that's what Priscilla Presley did 
as an executive producer. I'm just speculating, but it just, it seems that way based on some of the holes in this movie and some of the editing choices that may not have been the fault of the editor. But of course, when a movie is edited, there are producers and executive producers who, as well as studio executives who actually see the film and think, okay, this and this should be edited out. And sometimes the filmmakers take their word for it, and sometimes they don't. But I feel like Priscilla Presley might have had a little bit too much creative control over this film. But it's still good in its own sense, and I give Priscilla my rating of a checkout, because I do think that Sofia Coppola wrote and directed this film very well. I Presumably she also produced the film very well, but I don't exactly know what goes into producing, so I can't say for sure. Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi turn in amazing performances, both on their own and especially when they're in the same scene together. And their relationship could be going great or they could be going bad, but there haven't been many sour moments with them in this film. I just think that the editing was questionable and the way it ended had me wanting more in the bad sense of the way. So Priscilla, I think, is worth a look. It has a tough act to follow coming after Boz Lerman's biography about Elvis that came out last year. I think it's serviceable. I think it's well acted. But I feel like there should have been a lot more, especially when it came to the story of the two of them. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is It's a Wonderful Knife. And yeah, the title of this film is a bad pun, but then again, so was last year's Violent Night, which was not so much a horror film as much as it was an action comedy. And it was a film that sounded very stupid on paper. In, in terms of its premise about Santa Claus being John McClane and taking down these villains who are holding a house hostage, but it really worked. And it was a very fun movie that I will probably watch again this Christmas as for it's a wonderful knife. It's another, it's another premise that especially when you consider that the title of the film is a bad pun of it's a wonderful life. It sounds really stupid on paper, but I give this movie a chance. The, the plot of the movie is this. After, sta- after saving her town from a psychotic killer, Winnie Carruthers' life is less than wonderful. When she wishes she'd never been born, she finds herself in a nightmare parallel universe where, without her, things could be much, much worse. And ever since It's a Wonderful Life reemerged in the 1980s as a perennial holiday favorite, after languishing in the public domain for however many years. There have been a lot of movies and TV shows that have taken the idea of somebody wishing they were never born and seeing an alternate universe where they weren't born as a premise. And some movies have taken this premise as well, and none of them have been particularly clever with it. And this film, I think, takes it to a certain degree, but is overall... Not all that great. It is a comedy horror mystery, according to IMDb. And the comedy is lacking. The horror isn't scary. And the mystery is actually somewhat predictable, which is a big disappointment. And Winnie Carruthers in this film is played by Jane Whittup, who is a senior in high school when we... Actually, she's a junior in high school because we meet her in the... Christmas holiday break of her junior year. And that's when she actually kills a 
knife-wielding maniac and discovers his identity, which I won't give away here. But a year later, things are better in her town of Angel Falls, which is somewhat of a take on Bedford Falls. And interestingly enough, one of the antagonists in this film is a mayor by the name of Henry Waters, whose name is is somewhat of a not-so-obvious pun or a take on the villainous Henry Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. But he's played by Justin Long, and he's not played like Lionel Barrymore played Henry Potter. And I actually kind of liked that. In fact, Justin Long plays him less like Lionel Barrymore and more like probably Joel Osteen. He has this part haircut and also these very white teeth. And I I thought that Justin Long was actually part of the, the funnier part of this film, particularly where he is going around to people's houses and trying to get them to sell their land so he can develop more property on them. But when the movie actually gets to the part where Winnie Carruthers makes a wish under the Aurora Borealis, which is making a rare appearance in her town of Angel Falls, and she wishes she's never been born, I just kind of thought that was um, where the movie sort of lost its originality because the setup to her wishing she'd never been born didn't really fit into the film the same way that even some other unabashed parodies of it's a wonderful life fit that story arc into their film. And also Winnie Carruthers, I'm not sure how old she is, but she's supposed to play someone who's 17 or 18 in this film, but she looks to be about 25. I don't know how old she actually is because I don't have that information, but she definitely looks older than a high school student. And it's not unusual these days. Well, actually it's not unusual for the last couple of decades for people who are as old as 30 to play high school students, but it helps when they actually look somewhat like they could conceivably be a high school student. And Jane Whittup doesn't really do that. And also there's, there are some elements to this film that I like. For example, when Winnie Carruthers is going around this alternate angel falls and she develops a friendship with and and an ally with a quote unquote weirdo in the class by the name of Bernie Simon, who's played by Jess McLeod, McLeod, excuse me, Jess McLeod. And I thought the chemistry between those two was very good, even when Bernie didn't know who Winnie actually was. But I also kind of thought that there were some plot developments where there's this universe where Winnie hadn't been born and In the film, she saves her brother from being killed by this knife-wielding maniac. Had she not been born, her brother would have been killed. So she goes to see her parents, who don't know who who she is, because in this universe she hadn't been born. But it didn't really make a lot of sense how her father and mother were in the same house, despite the fact that A, they got divorced, and B, her mother was shacking it up with just about every guy she saw, and she was actively just kind of dry humping a guy who she was seeing who was a, an obvious loser. And I thought that was made for a little bit too obvious comic effect, but it also didn't really make sense in the narrative of this alternate universe. And in addition to that, all the things that I said, the mystery of the film was very evident. The horror that took place in this film wasn't particularly scary and overall it wasn't very funny either now it's a wonderful knife has premiered in theaters beginning on november 10th 2023 but it also is available for streaming on shutter which is the streaming network specifically for horror movies which i hear is doing very well it's certainly in an alternative to Netflix, Hulu, and those other streaming platforms in that it has a niche and apparently works very well. But as a comedy and as a horror movie, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful knife is lacking. There are some performances here that are very funny, like uh, Justin Long's performance is probably one of the best. I also liked Jess McLeod in her role. I thought Jane Whittup was miscast, but I did like Joel McHale, even though he is a comic actor who's been very good in shows like Community. But here he plays it straight, and I actually think he does very well playing it straight. But again, the alternate 
universe in this film when this Winnie Carruthers character wasn't born should have been thought out a lot better. And I think there also could have been some room for laughs while acknowledging that this film is an obvious take on It's a Wonderful Life. But because it was lacking in those comedy and horror elements, It's a Wonderful Knife gets my rating of a strikeout. I think it's not a terrible film that, thanks to the performances in this film and some of the editing, could have been a lot worse, but maybe it's just me being jaded when it comes to slasher films because I just don't find slasher films scary anymore. And I thought that the element of surprise here wasn't very surprising in terms of the horror as well as the mystery in this film. So It's a Wonderful Knife is, I guess got the biggest laugh here from the play on the title of this film. But overall, it just was lacking in so many other departments that maybe it's worth viewing one Christmas, but it's unlikely you'll come back to this film in the holidays to come. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of November 13th through 17th, 2023. I will not be doing my podcast for the next two weeks. I'm going to be taking some time off for the Thanksgiving holiday, but rest assured, I'll be back in December to do my last couple of shows for the year before wrapping things up. My heart kind of hurts when I say that because I love doing this show, and I hope that the love that I exude when I do this show is very evident to those of you who are listening. But for those of you who are listening, thank you so much. I appreciate all the ears who are listening to this uh, this show on this platform. But regardless, there are some uh, movies that are subject to being released in theaters from November 11th through November 14th. A lot of them are low-budget action films or documentaries. I'm going to skip those, but there is one film that's coming out on November 15th that looks to be a concert movie, and it is somebody we haven't heard from for a very long time. It's Billy Idol who's doing a concert live at the Hoover Dam. Actually, I, I take that back. He's already done this concert, and he performed it live at the Hoover Dam, and it was made into a concert documentary called Billy Idol State Line. This is a docu-concert feature film that starts with a mini-doc about Hoover Dam and finishes with the first-ever rock and roll show performed and filmed at the world-famous landmark by, you guessed it, Billy Idol. The live event took place on April 8th, 2023, And it's amazing that I didn't hear about that. But then again, I haven't heard from Billy Idol for quite some time, but it's great that so late in Billy Idol's career, he actually made history by doing this concert. And there are some musicians who perform with him, including Steve Jones, Tony Canal, and Steve Stevens. And I would give you more of their biographies, but I don't really have a lot of time for that right now. I'm going to check this film out, even though it's coming on a very awkward day of the week, Wednesday. It's probably one of those Fathom events that's going to be shown once, but it's a film that I may see, and if I do, I'll review it for you on a future show. On November 17th, 2023, a Friday, there are at least four films that are going to be premiering in theaters, and I'll go through them as quickly as I can because there's a lot to discuss here. One of them is a Hunger Games movie that I think is the first film of the Hunger Games series that is not based on a previously written book. And in this film, it's a prequel. And Suzanne Collins is credited for having written the characters. And in this prequel, which is called The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Coriolanus Snow mentors and develops feelings for the female 
District 12 tribute during the 10th Hunger Games. The movie stars Rachel Zegler as Lucy Gray Baird. And there's been some controversy with Rachel Zegler as of late, particularly where it's pertained to the Disney live-action remake of Snow White. I've been trying to ignore a lot of that because I think it's mostly, A, people's fatigue with the Disney live-action remakes, and B, Rachel Zegler's early 20s naivete. I'm not holding anything against her. I think largely it's a mistake for Disney to keep pumping out these live-action remakes because with the exception of Pete's Dragon, they've been mediocre to relatively just bad. But anyway, Rachel Zegler is the sacrifice from District 12, as I might have said. Tom Blythe plays Coriolanus Snow, and Viola Davis also co-stars in this film, in addition to Peter Dinklage. So you got some really good actors here, and I do count Rachel Zegler there, because Rachel Zegler has a certain X factor, and I, I imagine we'll be seeing a lot more of her later. Maybe not in Disney live-action remakes, but who knows. But The Hunger Gangs, The, the, the Hunger Games, the, battle, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is a film's title that I can't pronounced correctly apparently but either way it's a film that's coming out it's a film that i may see and i'll let you know what i think on a future show the other movie that is subject to being released in theaters on november 17th is a movie that i wish i could actually review for you next weekend but i'm taking a bit of a hiatus from my um podcast for the next couple of weeks but just a brief hiatus but this film is thanksgiving And it's directed by Eli Roth, and it is based directly on a fake trailer that was included in the Quentin Tarantino-Robert Rodriguez hybrid Grindhouse. And in that film, Thanksgiving was not a real film. It was just a film that was kind of a, a trailer parody of films that came out in the 70s and 80s that were kind of hokey in their premise, but... Apparently, there has been enough interest in this fake trailer uh, 16 years after Grindhouse came out because Grindhouse didn't do well commercially in theaters. It did pretty well critically, but it developed a cult following, especially when the two films in the, the Grindhouse movie, Death Proof and Planet Terror were released separately on DVD, and each of them developed a cult following as well. But Grindhouse, by popular demand, was also released on Blu-ray in its entirety as it was seen in theaters, and people got to see a lot of those fake trailers that I was absolutely delighted to see when I saw it in theaters back in 2007, and I didn't really care too much if the films or the previews in the film were real or not. I just enjoyed the whole experience. But anyway... Thanksgiving, the 2023 film directed by and co-written by Eli Roth, is after a Black Friday riot ends in tragedy, a mysterious Thanksgiving-inspired killer terrorizes Plymouth, Massachusetts, the birthplace of the infamous holiday. And the movie stars a number of relatively well-known people, including Rick Hoffman, Gina Gershon, Patrick Dempsey, and others. It's a film that... I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, but I don't know if when I come back after Thanksgiving, I'm going to be reviewing this movie for you. I just don't know. But regardless, it looks like a fun and funny horror film, and I would love to see it, particularly before Thanksgiving. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 17th is a movie called Trolls Band Together. And this is a film that is the third in the DreamWorks Trolls series. And DreamWorks has kind of dipped in animation quality since they, um, a couple of years ago. But their first Trolls incantation was probably one of their last great animated films. Although the Puss in Boots film that came out last Christmas was also very good. But a number of the voice actors who were in the original Trolls movie and also the sequel, Trolls World Tour, which I haven't seen, are coming back to reprise their roles, including Anna Kendrick, Justin Timberlake, Zoe Deschanel, David Diggs, and others. And in this Trolls film, Trolls Band Together, Poppy, Anna Kendrick's character, discovers that Branch was once part of the boy band Brozone with his brothers Floyd, John Dory, Spruce, and Clay. 
When Floyd is kidnapped, Branch and Poppy embark on a journey to reunite his two older brothers and rescue Floyd. So I believe, obviously, Justin Timberlake was uh, a member of the boy band NSYNC. Will they reunite? I think eventually they will. They've reunited on stage. And I think eventually there's going to be somebody who's going to pay them millions of dollars to reunite and do an album. I'm not sure how good that album's going to be, but I never liked NSYNC to begin with. But regardless, Trolls Band Together is a film that's coming out on November 17th. It's probably going to be a hit. And it's a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the final movie that I'm going to reveal for you, uh, and unfortunately I'm not going to be able to get to the films that are coming out on Thanksgiving week, but this one is an independent film directed by Taika YTT, who won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for the movie he did, which was uh, Jojo Rabbit, which I'll probably have to view that film again because there's a lot of it that I've forgotten. But in his directorial debut, Taika Waititi directs a film called Next Goal Wins. And this is the story of the infamously terrible American Samoa soccer team known for a brutal 2001 FIFA match. They lost 31 to zip. Ouch. Yeah, I don't think you can embarrass yourself any more in any sport than losing a goose egg match like that. And considering, well, I probably don't have to tell you this, but with soccer or with football, (laughs) one point is one goal. So this American Samoa soccer team had 31 goals scored on them. That's got to hurt, but um, I am interested in seeing the film. I think Taika Waititi is a unique filmmaker, and he certainly has a premise, presence excuse me, on screen, in addition to also behind the scenes, as is evidenced by his Academy Award-winning Jojo Rabbit film. But Next Goal Wins is a film that I will see, and I will review it for you on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, This is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.